This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Vinganza Media Podcast about all things in print. I'm your host, Stuart in L.A., and we have reached the end of our meal with Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. All month long, I've been dining on the works of Thomas Harris, getting to know our psycho-psychiatrist a little bit better, and we have now reached the end, Hannibal Rising. Or maybe it's the beginning, because Hannibal Rising is an origin story. It seeks to actually explain away all the things that happened to Hannibal that made him the incarcerated, flesh-eating, brilliant psychiatrist that we know and love and have enjoyed. A dicey proposition to have a definitive biography of the character, and one I don't think that Thomas Harris would have taken up had he not been coerced, uh, asked really, really nicely. <laughs> I think threatened might even be a correct term. I do know this much. Dino De Laurentiis owned the rights to Hannibal Lecter in movies and had been very patiently waiting for Harris to finish Hannibal in order to go forward with the story. But now that that had sort of run its course, nobody necessarily wanted to see Lecter and Clarice eating South Americans. I think that he was going to go forward with a reboot with Thomas Harris involved or not. He gave Harris the option of being involved. We'd love for you to write this. However, we're making it next week. And so, Harris really was at a crossroads here. Does he risk alienating fans even further by telling an origin story to everyone's favorite character that is dissatisfying? Or can he stand the thought of another writer taking away his baby and raising it and giving us all those answers from their perspective? I don't think he wanted to be cut out of the process. So the deal that he worked with De Laurentiis was that he would write everything. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to write the book and the script. And I'm going to do it at the same time. So this work feels very different. You know, before it has been a screenwriter adapting a novel. And here it is a novelist who is learning the screenplay format and writing the script at the same time that he's writing the book. They came out in very close succession to each other. I think only half a year between the publishing of the book and the release of the movie. Now, a coming-of-age story even a coming age of a serial killer, is going to feel very different than any of the other novels because Harris can't use the formula that's he's sort of patented at this point. You know, we know about the triumvirate. He likes to use to pit each other. You know, there's always an investigator who's trying to catch a serial killer and they're going to Lecter for advice and those three have an interplay. Well, a young boy growing up in Lithuania during World War II, there's no end for that. You're not able to use that structure. And so how Harris has reconceived of the story in this iteration is as a fairy tale, quite literally as a Grimm's Brothers fairy tale. The, just take a look at the first sentence of the novel. Hannibal the Grimm, 1365 through 1528, built Lecter Castle in five years, using for labor the soldiers he had captured at the Battle of Zalgiris. Just juxtaposing Grimm and Hannibal. I get it, you know, and one of the first moments described here in this novel is of a little boy and a little girl by a lake full of swans singing Hansel and Gretel. 
you know, that fairy tale about kids that end up eat, being thrown into an oven and a witch that wants to eat them. Yeah, if you can recall those plot details, that's obviously going to come into play here. And it's the grafting of classic fairy tales, the co-opting of them, is what Harris is using to try and really enrich and give a new spirit to this origin story. So, once upon a time, the lectors had to leave their castle because Nazis were invading and blitzkriegs were happening. And even though they weren't Jewish, they needed to seek shelter from all of the war-torn Lithuanian battles by going to a remote hunting lodge. And in their employment is a Jewish tutor who is instructing young Hannibal in all of the academic arts that he would still have an affection for as an adult. I think that Lecter's love of knowledge, books, lore, religion, everything, really starts and is owes a big debt to Yakov, who teaches him the most important thing he will ever learn, actually, the creation of the memory palace. If you will recall in Hannibal, it's described that being inside Lecter's mind can be visualized as actually being inside a museum, and that if you were to walk down corridors, you would see violent moments from his life and his feverish thoughts and all, like dioramas. That's really how we're to conceive of it. I mean, I guess it the closest that we ever saw in the movies cinematically was when Clarice crawled under the garage door in Silence of the Lambs, and there was all of Lecter's things lying around. It was kind of like that, but on a grand scale, a palace. This is a memory palace, and it's a visualization exercise. Yakov continues to hammer into the child so that he will never forget and that's why he has a steel trap mind and knows all details about everything is because it all lives within the confines of this imaginary building in his head. So even though he's had to leave his home behind, a grand palace in and of itself, he started building his real home right at this moment. And we realize at the center of it, the thing that he most values is his young sister Misha. Misha is only two years old, hasn't really begun to even speak or learn yet, but he has quite an affection for her. It's described in this way in the novel. He found he loved her in a way he could not help, and when she was old enough to wonder, he wanted to show her things. He wanted her to have the feeling of discovery. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, that kind of mentor relationship, that's exactly what he had with Clarice. So I think they're trying to retroactively say the reason why he bonded with Clarice so quickly is because at this early formative childhood state, he has always been a mentor to a young, beautiful girl, and that this is what he wants to do. It's very innocent now in this state. He, there's no designs on eating her at this moment. So that's the curiosity is what will happen to Misha if Clarice became an investigator because she heard the screaming of lambs at an early age. I think we're to conclude that the screaming of Misha, the trauma that she endures here in this hunting lodge, is what is driving Lecter. But of course, we don't know what that is for the longest part of the novel, we are left wondering what exactly was Misha's fate. We know that these children are orphaned very early on. They're caught in a battle between Russian and Nazi soldiers, and through the gunfire and bullets shot off, everyone is left dead except these two children, and they must work on their own. They're very much like Hansel and Gretel. They're out there in the woods, all on their own, trying to find their way home, metaphorically speaking. They're staying in the lodge. Uh, there's no breadcrumbs. There's no bread. <laughs> there's basically no food. They're really just barely getting by. 
and they become the victims of six bandits that have been looking for shelter. They're Nazi collaborators under the leadership of a man named Grutus who come to the lodge seeking shelter after the Nazis are pushed out of Lithuania and the Lecter Castle. And so we are wondering for the longest time what these men are really going to do to these children. We know that they're not going to adopt and raise them. They're carpetbaggers. They've had to be a lot of things. They're Lithuanians, they're Russians, they're Nazis, whatever they need to be. They'll do whatever it takes to survive. And indeed, this is what's said to the children right before Lecter's memory goes blank. We have to eat or die. He's got blood on his face. That was the last conscious memory Hannibal Lecter had of the lodge. His memory palace goes dark at this point. There's a big sign, do not enter. He represses. The man with the steel trap mind, even he won't go here. And so the next time we see him, he's wandering around alone, no Misha, in the forest. Russian liberators find him, put him on a tank, and take him back to Lecter Castle. And that has been repurposed as an orphanage. There have been lots of children left without their parents due to World War II. It's now ended. And under Stalin, this has become a home very much in a Dickensian way. Uh, Lecter has become Oliver Twist, and he suffers at the hands of bullies. But even though he's a little kid, he doesn't let that get to him. He stands up for himself. He fights back, and he's violent. Um, Other kids learn to be scared of him. He does not speak anymore. It's important to note that no one knows what happens to Misha. He can't tell them anything because he has gone mute. Not because he has lost his voice, but he has simply lost the desire to communicate with the world. I think in the movie, this character has to jump over the Iron Curtain and flee to France. But here in the novel, it's one of the big changes. He's actually just waiting the arrival of his uncle, Count Robert Lecter, who is coming from his French chateau to reclaim him. Robert Lecter is a painter, and I think this is where Hannibal started to cultivate that love of drawing and classical painting, is through his his uncle and the relationship that he'll form with him. It's stated that he is a painter of subversive works, and that Nazis actually collected his works. They were inspired by it. I don't know exactly what that means, but I take it to mean that it's graphic and morbid, and that with graphic and morbid subject matter, that's just something that maybe all the lectors are into. They've always been into subversive, violent imagery. Certainly Hannibal will take up that case. But he's taken back to a small village uh, remote in France and comes under the care of his uncle and, more importantly, Lady Murasaki who is the wife of Lecter, a Japanese woman who was the daughter of an ambassador living in Paris and who became attracted to him through the arts and painting, has been his wife for several years. They have no children of their own. She starts to really adopt Lecter as the son she doesn't have, and his feelings for her are complicated. I think they are both a motherly love and maybe a sexual love, too. It's hard to say. But time is elongated here. We jump from him being in the six to eight year range to him being 13 years old now. He is still mute. He is still not communicating. But he does have a relationship that he has learned to talk through making origami, paying patronage to her Japanese ancestors. She has samurai swords up in the attic and has taught him about her culture. He hasn't done very well in school, but the bullies have learned to stand back because he still fights back and is 
pretty brutal. Murasaki takes Hannibal to market, and a pivotal moment happens. It's really going to change everything going forward. A very innocuous but important moment. A man humiliates Lady Murasaki, Paul the Butcher. They're in the open market. He sees that she's Japanese. He was a Nazi collaborator. I guess he didn't think about the fact that the Nazis worked with Japanese. He was over in France, and he never saw that side of it. But he humiliates her, says very racially charged things about her sexually as well. And it recalls Miggs, if you remember in Silence of the Lambs, the way that Clarice was degraded by Miggs and how it inspired Hannibal to retaliate and get Miggs to kill himself. Well, it kind of plays out similar here, too. Little Hannibal picks up a leg of lamb, of all things, from the butcher's table and beats Paul the Butcher senselessly with it, so violently that he's called in to talk with police inspectors. And, you know, he ends up being seeing a shrink who hypnotizes him and tries to get him to talk and delve into the memories of his sister. It's He's starting to demonstrate the sociopath that he will become. But it's motivated... It's not because he's crazy or chemically imbalanced or damaged. It's because people are rude to the women that he loves. I appreciate that Thomas Harris is trying to find causal events to explain who Lecter will be. I mean, that's why we're reading this, right? But sometimes crazy is crazy. What I bump into in this part of the story is the fact that he thinks he can explain away everything that we ever will see with Lecter by saying, well, when he was a kid, this happened to him. I mean, that's kind of a lame excuse sometimes, right? Just because things happen to you in formative age doesn't mean you can't transcend them. We all have bad stuff in our history. We're not all cannibalistic serial killers. I think that it's difficult for him to explain away from a behavioral psychiatrist standpoint everything that Lecter is going to become, when sometimes crazy is just crazy. And I was okay with thinking that Lecter just had some wiring wrong in the head. And here, at the age of 13, he's going to do his first kill. Originally, it falls to Robert Lecter to write this incident. He goes to talk to the butcher and has a heart attack or something. In his anger, he seizes up and falls to the ground and drops dead. And so, Lady Murasaki is not a French citizen. She's going to be asked to return to Japan, and she's being pushed out of the chateau. Little Hannibal is furious that his life is changing, all because of this rude butcher. So he goes to find him in the woods. He's returning from a fishing trip, and he kills him. He speaks for the first time, and he uses the ninja sword from Murasaki's attic to carve him up. And it's a little jarring. I mean, on one hand, I appreciate that they're showing us that at a very early age, he demonstrated the tendencies to kill. I think that's in keeping with a lot of serial killers. They do that, right? The small animals or, or what have you. So it makes sense that he would attack Paul the Butcher in this way at this young age. I had no problem with that. But I did have a problem with him narrating it in medical terms. He's like, I'm going to slice up your vertebrae. I'm going to do this. I mean, I know the guy's smart and I know he's been studying. But really, your first words, this is what you got to say after five years of silence. It's just a, a little bit too much of a stretch. And maybe that's my review on a lot of this, is that it's just asking a little bit too much. It's trying too hard to tie it all together. The murder brings in to the picture Inspector Papil who becomes a new sort of father figure that stays with Murasaki and Hannibal for years to come. He chucks in on them. Initially, he pretty much figures it out. He thinks this little guy did it to defend his mother figure and 
can't blame him because he's very attracted to Murasaki. He might do the similar thing. He has a similar backstory. He is driven to find what happened to children that were exported by people that collaborated with the Nazis in France and sent them away to death camps. That's what's driving him. So he can understand about a little boy that's being driven to protect his family and Misha and Murasaki. So he tries to scare him straight. He brings him into the police station and shows him the jail and just tries to show that killing anyone, even if they're a rude Nazi collaborator, is not the law. That's not the way you handle things. And they'll have this dialogue throughout the coming years. Eventually, we're going to find that Hannibal becomes 18 years old. A lot of time passes in between. And I gotta say, a good half of this novel is devoted to details that are interesting and illuminating, and I appreciated, but aren't good storytelling. I feel like a lot of it feels like notes. Thomas Harris has done his research, and so we're learning about him in a way that feels real and tactile, but it's not exactly exciting. I mean, nothing is really happening for much of this novel. Lecter goes to medical school. Mirazaki is able to stay because her father was a, a, an ambassador. She goes to live in the apartment that he used to live in Paris. And Hannibal and Mirazaki see each other when they can. He starts developing, you know, a, an interest in drawing and applying that drawing to his medical diagrams, selling his drawings to an art dealer. There's a lot of dialogue about how he finds out paintings from the Lecter castle are being fenced by the man he's selling his drawings to, and that starts the process of finding out who is exploiting his family name, and indeed it goes back to those six bandits that broke into the hunting lodge, that they're behind this. They're behind a lot of things. They have a boat that's trafficking in prostitutes and SS morphine, and they're really over-the-top villains, I've got to say. They weren't just people trying to survive in impossible circumstances. They are now the embodiment of evil, and we are to want them dead. We are to want Lecter to go psycho and to hunt them down and kill them. And we've been waiting a long time. We've been waiting 200 pages for him to do it. It's too long to wait. It's a lot to ask. And there are a lot of details up to this point that, while nice, are just not selling me that this origin story was necessary. That said, I do want to compliment Thomas Harris on improved writing. I actually think the quality of the prose is stronger than it was in Hannibal. That by making the story simpler and by being on a tight deadline in which he had to turn this thing out in time for the movie, it's all the better for it. You know, who would have thought, you know, him taking so many years to write Hannibal and this thing he knocked off in a year or two is is much stronger as writing. For example, I'll just read this a nice little detail. With 40 million dead in the war, it seemed odd to Hannibal that the medical students would have to use cadavers long preserved in tanks. I mean, that kind of wry observation, that's the good stuff in this novel. I feel like that's the stuff that I like. It's light. It's not necessarily needed, but these are the things that I enjoy. At one point, as a medical student, he goes and watches a serial killer to be executed, and it's his first communion, really, with one of his own kind. There's a, a relationship that's established, and Papil is there, and he's trying to get from the guy information about children that were sold to the Nazis, and uh, you, you feel the stories entwining in an interesting, dramatic way, but much of this first 200 pages is not very dramatic. 
So it's a surprise and a disappointment when we finally get to the good stuff. When we finally get to the, okay, Lecter is going to go kill people. This is the part that Thomas Harris's heart just doesn't seem to be into. It feels very perfunctory. It doesn't feel particularly well written or plausible. You know, he goes back to Lithuania and finds one and eats his cheeks and he finds another one that's running a restaurant and has a little girl that reminds him of Misha and, you know, Lecter is allowing himself to go into that closed-off part of his memory palace. He's used medical drugs. He's pushed himself so that he can visualize the killers and find them and we're all leading up to the point where he's going to confront Grutus on his boat, his drug-running hooker boat in the middle middle of France, and challenge him on what he did and bring him to justice. And just to make the stakes even more exciting, Lady Murazaki has been kidnapped by Grutus, and she's there as well. So she's a witness to the fact that when it is revealed that you ate my sister, Hannibal did too. That's the big twist. That's the M. Night Shyamalan, I see dead people, oh, I'm a ghost too kind of reveal. Everything is supposed to spin on its head when we understand that Lecter dined on the same meal that Grutus did. Now, does that explain everything? I've thought long and hard about it. I mean, we're supposed to understand now that the reason why grown-up Lecter is going to eat co-eds and attack women and kill all of these people is because it gives him a sense of communion with the dead sister that he lost. I don't know. Uh, Maybe I'm just a hard sell on this, but I just don't think you can kind of explain these things away on Dime Store Psychiatry. And this feels really too easy and just too, too clever. I just feel like it doesn't work. For me, it doesn't explain everything away the way that a good storytelling would. And unfortunately, even though Thomas Harris has clearly tried his best to make this origin story tell us, it fails to really show us the lector that we've come to love in the other books. And Lady Murazaki says, what is left in you to love after this? You know, she he kills Grutus and wants to return with her and have their life together, and she's not willing to have that. A little harsh, wouldn't you say? I mean, if someone were starving and half alive and they ate a stew and maybe they were six, seven years old, I, I would cut him a little bit of slack here. But I think she's rejecting him not for what he did as a child, but for the sociopathic killing spree that she's witnessed as an adult. She's horrified and wants nothing more to do with him. And Papil, who has kind of floated in and out of the storyline and sort of romanced her, has to play the stern father and arrest Hannibal. He's actually going to go up for this, for killing the cannibals on the boat, and he's going to go down the river. Now I ask, is this in continuity? If it were documented fact that Hannibal Lecter had been arrested for murdering cannibals that ate his sister, don't you think that would have triggered some red flags for Will Graham and for people investigating future cannibal killings in America. I feel like this is a blot on his record he would not be able to erase. Even though he's going to go to a different country, at the end of this, he does beat the rap. The public outcry is such that Hannibal is to be freed, and the 18-year-old goes on a John Hopkins scholarship to America to become a psychiatrist. I feel like he can't be anonymous anymore. That that would be just be too glaring of a biography for anybody looking into cannibal killings. They just they certainly wouldn't want to consult with him. They certainly wouldn't trust him 
implicitly. It's just too much of a stretch. And this story has gone just a little too far in trying to give us an explanation for everything that we've loved about Lecter. They really psychoanalyze and deconstructed everything about him that we loved until there is nothing left. I do feel a little like Murasaki in that I'm willing to walk away from this character now and say, I'm done. I've seen the best and the worst that Thomas Harris has had to offer about Lecter and appreciated all of it. I Don't get me wrong, I've enjoyed reading all of these books. Every single one, even Hannibal, which is by far the worst. But it isn't fun anymore to dig any deeper into the memory palace. I want to keep my memories and my thoughts about him. I want to see him as an active participant in a crime investigation, but I don't want to read a detailed biography in which he is the subject. I feel like Lecter works best when he is in the shadows, when he is in the background, when he is consulting on darker demons and working against darker forces. That seems to be the formula that really works. Basically, if Hannibal is in the title, you're getting too much Hannibal, and I advise you to approach those works with uh, a lot more caution and to disregard them a little bit more readily than you would the really good novels, Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs. But thank you for joining me. I have had a blast, and I do look forward to returning to Books and Nachos when the proper project comes up. You know, maybe it won't be a series. Maybe it will be a one-off book. I'm watching so many things over at Now Playing, I don't know when I have time to read. But I certainly do enjoy finding the time to share my thoughts on books with you. And I hope you keep reading. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2011, Venganza Media Incorporated, all rights reserved.